Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Today our guest is a true Renaissance man. A scientist, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, a humanitarian, a social commentator, and a historian, Dr. Gregory A. Prince. Greg is author of one of the outstanding histories set in the 20th century, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism. But his topic today is his new book that is equally revealing, Leonard Arrington and the Writing of Mormon History. This year, 2016, marks Dialogue's 50th year of publication, and we're planning a fantastic anniversary celebration on September 30th in Salt Lake City at the Natural History Museum of Utah. We'll be honoring three outstanding individuals who exemplify the spirit of Dialogue, pioneering African-American Mormon Darius Gray, the Utah Supreme Court's first woman Chief Justice Christine Durham, and former church historian and general authority emeritus, Marlon Jensen. KUER Radio West host, Doug Fabrizio, will curate a conversation among our honorees. Our master of ceremonies will be Salt Lake Tribune humor columnist, Robert Kirby, and music will be performed by the Lower Lights. This will truly be a once-in-a-lifetime event. As this podcast is being prepared, there are a limited number of seats available. You can reserve your seat on the Dialogue website. Just click on the 50th Celebration button on the home page. But don't wait until the event is sold out. We hope to see you there. If you can't make it, however, please consider contributing online to our $50 on the 50th campaign. And now to our podcast, featuring Greg Prince speaking to a gathering of the Miller Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California. Tonight, we're privileged to have Gregory A. Prince. Greg is one of the most unique individuals, I think, that I have ever had the pleasure of knowing. He's a scientist, he's an entrepreneur, and he's a historian, and you don't see that mix very often. He was born and raised in Los Angeles, served a mission in Brazil, attended UCLA for six years, and earned doctorate degrees in dentistry and pathology. Then he moved to Maryland to work with the National Institute of Health and over the next four decades, he had a career in biomedical research and co-founded a company that pioneered the prevention of RSV pneumonia in high-risk infants. He's published more than 150 scientific papers, but importantly for us, he's also published several books on Mormon history, including the remarkable book, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, one of my all-time favorites, and it won the Mormon History Association's Best Biography Award in 2006. And it's through that book that I really first became acquainted with Greg. Some of you may recall that he spoke to our group about 10 years ago on that book. In writing it, he had unusual access to materials gathered and maintained by President McKay's longtime secretary, Claire Middlemas, and also conducted over 200 interviews. And the book reflects Greg's style, which is, as a scientist, to present the evidence and let the readers draw their conclusion. 
And I don't think there ever will be another book about a, a current day general authority that will present evidence like that one did because now they basically tell general authorities to not keep diaries and they tell their secretaries that they can't remove anything from the building. So uh, we may not have that opportunity again, but that book is a treasure if you haven't read it. It will illuminate what was going on during those years. Of course, Leonard Arrington uh, predated Greg's McKay book and uh, Arrington did keep a lot of his materials and so Greg was given access to all of those plus again conducted numerous interviews and that is what in his, is in his current book Leonard Arrington and the writing of Mormon history. Greg and I have, have served together on the dialogue board for several years enjoyed that privilege. He's currently serving as the interfaith liaison in the Washington DC stake. He and his wife Jalyn are the parents of three children, the youngest of whom is autistic, and they now spend much of their time in heading the Madison House Autism Foundation through which they hope to address national issues facing autistic adults and their families. So without further ado, I'll turn the floor over to Greg. Thank you. I've got uh, a one-minute video in my computer that you wouldn't be able to hear in the back row, so I won't play it, but it was sent to me this week. Harry Reid, the Senate Minority Leader, did the video for the purpose of publicizing the dialogue anniversary that's coming up that Maury talked about. The significant thing about it, it's one minute, but most of the one minute, Harry is talking about Leonard Arrington mm. and the influence that Leonard had on him when he was a student working under Harry, and he keeps going back to Leonard saying he was the one who opened it up. He's the one who stood for telling it as it is, uh, and I think he gets it right as well. If you put this book next to the McKay book, and I see a couple of copies of that floating around, you'll see that they look like companion books, and that's intentional. The University of Utah Press uh, complied with my wish that they look that way and they really are linked in a couple of ways. Number one is that the McKay book goes through 1970. The Arrington book basically starts the good stuff when he became the church historian two years after that. But there's also a relationship between the two men because in my mind both of them stood at the peak of their particular areas. President McKay was undisputedly the premier leader of the Mormon Church, not only during his lifetime, but I think you can argue during the entire 20th century. And Leonard Arrington stood at the peak of Mormon historiography. So to be able to be asked to do both of those biographies, because I didn't go looking for either one of them, was really quite an honor. When I finished the McKay book, which was 10 years in the making, as was Arrington, Jalen said, so what's next? And I said, I don't know, but I think it'll find me. It didn't take long to find me. I gave a lecture in the Logan Tabernacle, I think in September of 2005. The book came out in March 2005, and afterwards a woman came up to the podium and introduced herself. She says, I'm Susan Arrington Madsen, and I'd like to have breakfast with you tomorrow morning. In the course of a three-hour breakfast, she said, essentially, my brothers and I read the McKay book. We really liked it. Would you do Dad's biography? So how can you turn that down uh, the same way that I couldn't turn down Bob Wright, who was the nephew of Claire Middlemas, 
when he said, as he was the mission president in D.C. and got to know us, I have your next book because Claire left all of her papers to me. The McKay papers were over 100,000 pages. 40,000 pages of that consist of a diary that Claire wrote over a period of 35 years for the president. And then there were scrapbooks and transcripts of every discourse that he gave that she was able to record. Leonard uh, beat out McKay in terms of sheer volume. His papers at Utah State University are over 300 linear feet. That gets you into the pack rat category. His diary paled by comparison to McKay. It was only 20,000 pages instead of 40,000 pages. But both of those diaries were remarkable literary achievements. And I think not only what Moore said about general authorities, that we're not likely to see that happen again, I don't think we'll even see that happen again with people in the realm of historiography. At a time when it's never been easier to keep a record, we are poorer record keepers than we've ever been. We don't write things down, we don't write letters, we don't keep diaries, and the record that does exist out there is likely to be largely text messages and emails, and those electronic records do not have a very long lifespan. So they're going to be big voids in our history as we move forward, and we're going to look back at the good old days when people still knew, knew how to use a pen or a typewriter. A couple of words about, um, about getting into this book. The diaries were a major source of information, but I did what I had done with the McKay book, and that's something that you can do when there are still people around who knew the guy you're writing about. And that was to do over 100 interviews of people who were family, friends, associates with Leonard. That's what I think allows you to write a three-dimensional biography. A second similarity to the McKay book is this is not a front-to-back chronological biography. I, I think that those are boring, and I don't want to try to write boring things if possible. So it's topical. There is some chronicity to it, but each chapter of the book is written with the intent that one could read the chapter in isolation and still have a reasonably good idea of what was going on. Each chapter is supposed to tell a story. I want to just take you through a few quotes of the book, and then we'll have plenty of time for discussion. This was from one of Leonard's nephews, not named in his diaries, who wrote, We saw you on TV last night for the first time. My dad says not to worry, you are a lot smarter than you look. (laughs) Anyway, I want you to know that I'm going to be a historian myself someday. My dad says I should finish grade school first because I needed eighth grade education to be as smart as you. In school tomorrow, we have a test about polecats. I think of you often. Sincerely, your nephew. (laughs) This came from Maureen Beecher, who worked in the historical department, and I'll circle back to her later in talking about Leonard's contributions towards women. She said, I remember the time that he came in with four big pastry boxes. He put them on his desk. He called the office staff. He'd just stand at the door and say, Everybody come. I finally tipped the scales at 200 pounds, and we're going to share it. He had chocolate pies. Unfortunately, he tipped the scales going up, not going down. But it didn't seem to worry him. And the third was from Bob Flanders. Some of you will remember his groundbreaking history of Nauvoo called Kingdom on the Mississippi, which 
really resulted in him being shunned out of the reorganized church. He said, first meeting, I remember we made a date to meet in the lobby of the Mobach Hotel in Kansas City. I went there looking for Leonard, and I couldn't find him. I was looking and looking and looking, and I couldn't find him. All of a sudden, a voice from down here said, Hi, I'm Leonard Arrington. I realized as I reflected on it, I was looking for a giant. Leonard didn't reach five foot six, and that was a cause of some consternation to him when he tried to enlist in the military when World War II happened because it meant that he wound up in the Army instead of being able to go either in the Navy or the Army Air Force. Um, he was five, five and a half. He tried to take stretching exercises because the recruiter said, here, try this, come back in a month, and he could only add a quarter inch, so they turned him down. Leonard's parents, Noah and Edna, uh, were products of the Great Depression. Leonard was born in 1917, so most of his formative years were during the Depression. Noah was a good man. He was a local church leader. He was either a high counselor or a bishop in Twin Falls, Idaho, for quite a while. But he was a largely uneducated man. There is a photocopy in Leonard's diary of a letter that Noah wrote to Leonard when Noah was on a mission in Florida. Those were the years when it didn't bother the church to pluck a man away from his family this being right at the beginning of the Depression, send him on a two- or three-year mission and let the family figure out how they're going to make ends meet in the process. Noah had very poor spelling, very poor, poor syntax, and later on when Leonard wanted to go to college, uh, he had a very poor attitude about what Leonard should be doing with his time. Eventually he consented for Leonard to go to the University of Idaho his total contribution to the financial support of Leonard during the four-year time that he was there was $5. Now, 1918, a year after Leonard is born, some of you will remember hearing about an influenza epidemic that circled the globe twice. It killed far more people than World War I. Good estimates range from 50 to 100 million people died from this influenza pandemic. We've never had one in recorded history that killed so many people. It came through Twin Falls, and it affected most of the Arrington family, including Leonard. He wrote later, he wasn't that precocious, when Dr. Klauchek said I had pneumonia, he told my father, also down with the flu, that I would die within 24 hours. My father seemed resigned to it, having previously lost Thelma, my sister, but my mother was not. Rising up from her sickbed against the strong objections of the doctor, Edna summoned a friend, Hannah Bowen, and with her joined in ministering to Leonard in a manner generally done only by the male lay ministry, quote, anointing me, blessing me, and praying for me. Their blessing was efficacious. My mother always believed that God had saved me for a special purpose. As I achieved in school and in other activities, she believed I was vindicating God's saving gift to her. And I think that that had a lot to do with Leonard's sympathy for women and for women's history and for bringing women into the writing of history, which I'll get into a little bit later. He wrote of his college experience, I must have been a pretty smelly, unkempt fellow. I simply did not have any money and could not afford to spend for anything unnecessary. 
I washed my own clothes in the basement of the Institute. The Institute of Religion at University of Idaho was the first one started by the church. had a beautiful building that later uh, burned down, but it included dormitories. He said, my recollection is that I wore one pair of socks for a full week, a shirt for a full week, and I wore one set of underwear for a full week. <laughs> he also wrote that when he went to school, uh, he was introduced to two things he'd never heard of growing up in Twin Falls. One was milkshakes and the other was Coca-Cola. <laughs> Give you some idea of how isolated he was. Twin Falls, I'm not an Idahoan, Twin Falls and Idaho Falls sound similar. They're very different from each other. Idaho Falls is right in the middle of Mormon country. Twin Falls is quite a ways out of Mormon country. And so he was a religious minority for the entire time that he was growing up. I think that played into his view, not only of how to write Mormon history, but how to relate to non-Mormons because he grew up being outside of the majority. When he went to college, he said that he had his first intellectual challenge of his life. He said, I didn't have any intellectual struggles until I went to the University of Idaho, but during the first semester, semester, biological evolution challenged me. He wrote of George Tanner, who was the institute director, he attempted to expose us to the very best religious scholarship and learning, and his superiors gave him complete freedom in determining the course of study and the most useful textbooks and readings. Above all, he wanted us to realize that deep religious faith can be perfectly consistent with genuine academic scholarship. His policy was one of intellectual openness, one fully supported by Elder Joseph Merrill and at that time by Elder John Widso and the First Presidency. George was a liberal and not afraid to declare it. Liberals, he said, are people who are not afraid to think independently even though this thinking may lead in a little different direction from Orthodox Mormon teaching. Brother Tanner and my major professor, Dr. Irwin Grouse, also introduced me to George Santayana's Reason in Religion. I do not say that I fully understood it, but the book gave me a concept that has been helpful ever since, that truth may be expressed not only through science and abstract reason, not only through scriptural texts, but also through stories, testimonies, and narratives of personal experience. Not only through erudite scholarship, but also through poetry, drama, and historical novels. Santayana used the term myth, a term well understood in recent religious literature, to refer to the expression of religious and moral truths in symbolic language. Because of my introduction to the concept of symbolism as a means of expressing religious truth, I was never overly concerned with the question of the historicity of the first vision or of the many reported epiphanies in Mormon, Christian, and Hebrew history. I was prepared to accept them as historical or as metaphorical, as symbolical, or as precisely what happened. I wish we had a little bit more of that philosophy pervading our system these days. I think that our kids in particular would do a lot better as they look outward as well as inward. Grace was a saving influence for Leonard. She was a Southern Belle. She was not LDS, did not convert until several years after they were married. She took it upon herself right from the start to clear the path for him. She realized his potential. She realized that his passion was to research and to write history. And everything that didn't do that, she decided that she would take care of, which was terrific for him, except when she died. 
And then Leonard found out very quickly that he was essentially helpless. His son James told me that one of the great discoveries of his life after Grace died was the microwave meal. <laughs> that he would go to the grocery store, make a beeline for the frozen food section, throw seven meals in the shopping basket, and check out. And then in his diary, he said several months after she died, I'm having a difficult time because the Stouffer's meals say, take it out of the box, but before you put it in the microwave, poke three to five holes in the top. He said, does that mean three or does it mean five? <laughs> and he was serious. He was so channeled into what he'd been doing in his professional life that simple tasks like that escaped him. His son said he really didn't even know how to boil water at the time that Grace died. He said of his army experience, which lasted from 1943 to 1946, of all the branches of the service, the army was the least desirable. Of all the branches of the army, the least desirable was the military police. Of all the branches of the military police, the least desirable were those assigned to look after enemy prisoners of war. Of all the branches of those assigned to look after enemy prisoners of war, the least desirable were those assigned to look after the Italians. That, dear reader, is my testimony of the important status that I was given in the Army. <laughs> so he was initially stationed in North Africa in an encampment uh, to guard Italian prisoners of war, but he broke the rules and started to uh, engage the Italian prisoners in conversation, and that's the way that he learned to speak Italian. He said, as a private, nobody paid any attention to what we were doing, even though I broke the rules to do it. Because of that, plus his earlier training in economics at the University of North Carolina, once he got up to the Italian mainland, always behind the troops that were advancing northward, so that he never had to fire a shot, he was promoted to the title of Allied Controller of the Italian Census Bureau, which would be the equivalent of an undersecretary in the cabinet in the United States government, and at that time he had the exalted rank of corporal in the army. Uh, the picture of his office, which is in the book, uh, would make you drool even now. While he was in Italy, he decided that economics, and particularly economic history of the Mormons, was what he wanted to concentrate on for his doctoral dissertation. So he wrote a cold call letter to John Witso, then of the Quorum of the Twelve, never having met the man, but knowing that Witso was a former university president and thinking that he might get a good reception from him. He said, I, I want to do something in Mormon economic history, but I need some guidance. This is what Witso had to say. You'll have to do most of this work in the archives of the church. Again, this is 1945. Let me give you some practical advice. Don't go in there and say, I want everything you have on Mormon economic enterprises. You go in there and tell them that you're interested in studying Mormon culture and Mormon history. Begin by asking for some printed books about Mormon history. It doesn't matter if you've seen them before or not. Ask for some printed books. Spend a day or two looking at them. Then ask for some old newspapers. They'll bring them out, and you'll look at them for two or three days. Then ask them what their basic source of material on Mormon history is. Now they'll say, the journal history of the church. You'll say, may I look at the first volume? 
They'll bring it to you, and you, to you and you'll use that. When you finish that, go back and get the second volume, the third volume, and stay there until you finish the journal history of the church. Journal history of the church is an ongoing scrapbook that's several hundred volumes. So he had his work cut out for him, but that's exactly what he did. Witzel continued, considering things like they are in the church archives, parenthetically, Joseph Fielding Smith was the church historian, and his associates served primarily to ward people off from using anything. (laughs) Considering things like they are in the church archives, you have to be like the camel, which poked his head in the tent and gradually moved along until gradually it carried the tent away with it. And that's exactly what Leonard did at a time when the general consensus was that the archives were highly restricted or even closed, Leonard was able to see just about everything because he had followed Widsow's advice. His dissertation he rewrote into what became Great Basin Kingdom and Economic History of the Mormons, still considered not only the state of the art for that subject, but occasionally you'll see lists of the 10 best or 12 best Mormon books of all time, you will almost always see Great Basin Kingdom still on that. It was first published by Harvard University Press in 1958, and I think it has remained in print, either hardback or paperback, ever since. Problem Leonard had, though, was that he was an economist who was writing about economic history, and he knew data, but he didn't know narrative. So it was fortunate for him that George Ellsworth, who was a superb historian, but had very little productivity because he held himself to such a high standard of writing, took him under wing at Utah State University and taught him how to write history. Ellsworth took a harder look at the manuscript and gave Leonard a candid assessment. A wonderful piece of research from which a splendid history could be written. The critique was withering, and it reoriented Arrington's vision of his work. Suddenly, he wrote, I realized that it was a dry book, meaning his doctoral dissertation. Comprehensive and detailed, it was also a one-fold treatise. Ellsworth convinced Leonard that I was going to have to quit thinking of myself as an economist writing an economics book and begin thinking of myself as a historical writer trying to tell a fascinating story of a fascinating people. It took him from 1952 when he filed his dissertation until 1958 to complete the process of rewriting the dissertation and having it published, but what he published became almost an instant classic. The academic years from 1946 to 1972 he spent at Utah State University, and it was good news and bad news for him all of his own doing. The good news is that he became tremendously productive as a writer of Mormon history. His associates in the economics department saw how productive he was and wanted him to succeed because that made them look better, uh, basking in reflected light. Uh, So they would do a lot of the menial tasks, the administrative tasks, the committees, uh, some of the teaching loads, so that he would be freer to do his research and his writing. What worked against him was that that's all that Leonard did want to do. He was very good at that, but on several occasions he turned down opportunities to be a department chairman. So he never had any administrative experience. Now 1972, he's plucked out of Utah State University 
and asked to organize a small bureaucracy, the Church Historical Department, which was part of a general church reorganization of the bureaucracy, and to exist within a Byzantine bureaucracy that could uh, rival the Vatican for intrigue, and he had zero administrative experience under his belt. And eventually, this is really what cost him and the History Division their short-lived success, that he had chosen to bypass the opportunity to gain and to sharpen those tools along the way. The Church Historian's Office at the time of David O. McKay's death, had been presided over by Joseph Fielding Smith since 1922. Smith had no training in history, and nobody who worked in the historian's office had any training in history. Most of them got there either because they had been the recipients of church welfare, and this was how they were to work off the assistance that they received, or because they were related to somebody. Earl Olson, for example, was a grandson of Andrew Jensen, and he worked there because he was about the only person who could stand to work with his grandfather, who was so cantankerous that everybody else quit on him. So that was the state of expertise in the church historian's office at the time that there was a general reorganization. Harold B. Lee had for decades envisioned that reorganization of the church. Any of you whose experience in the church goes back several decades, particularly prior to 1970, will appreciate that it was a balkanized church, that auxiliary organizations had sprung up as grassroots initiatives. All of the auxiliaries, even including the Relief Society, happened that way. It was all bottom-up, not top-down. But because of that, there were fiefdoms, and each had its own kingdom and decided what it was going to do. I interviewed Lynn Richards, who was the son of Stephen L. Richards, Lynn was in his 90s when I talked to him, and he had been in the general Sunday school superintendency. He said, I, I asked him, how did you determine what your course of study would be? And he said, we decided, we meaning the Sunday school superintendency. Well, how did you find authors? Well, we just went out and contracted with them to do it. Did you have to check with anybody else? No. They didn't even check with the other auxiliary organizations or with the Quorum of the Twelve or with the First Presidency. They just did it. And as a result, as the church grew larger, there were more and more conflicts between the various organizations because there wasn't this coordination going on. That's what the early correlation movement in 1961 was aimed at reducing. After McKay died, Lee, who had been in charge of correlation, then took it to the next level, which was a general bureaucratic reorganization. They brought in an Eastern consulting firm from Chicago and said, look at the entire bureaucracy of the church, make recommendations for us. I spoke with Alan Blodgett, who at one point was the church's chief financial officer, and he said, in the 60s, I saw an organizational chart that was flat. He said, there were over 24 organizations that reported directly to the first presidency and none reported to the Quorum of the Twelve. Until McKay died, the Quorum of the Twelve were basically staff for the First Presidency. And basically, they did two things. They conducted state conferences, and they spoke in general conferences, and that was it. So it was as part of this overall reorganization that the CRESAP organization said, we recommend that you professionalize the historical department. And that's why they brought Leonard in, even though he wasn't a professional historian, he was an economist. He was good enough, and he certainly was the most prominent church historian by then. 
So you have to view what happened in the history division as part of what was happening in the entire church and realize that the almost immediate pushback from several senior apostles against the history division was probably because the whole thing had been presented to them as something like an omnibus bill without a line item veto. They were asked to approve the general reorganization, a small part of which was professionalizing the historical department. Now, you hear of Leonard and the title of church historian, and that's true in the sense that he was sustained in general conference as church historian. They blew it, though, in giving him that title because prior to that time, Joseph Fielding Smith, an apostle, had been the church historian. Now you had two apostles, one of which was uh, Howard Hunter and the other is Bruce McConkie, who were the advisors to the historical department. Dyer, member of the Assistance to the Twelve, was the executive director. And then there was library, archives, and history division, which also was called church historian. And therein is a problem that persists to this day. What he did was two echelons lower than what the prior church historians had done. It was an unfortunate misnomer for them to give him that title. If they had merely called him Director History Division, all of that controversy later on when they took his photograph down from the wall would have gone away because nobody would ever have used that title. But nonetheless, that's what they did and that caused them a nightmare later on. I mentioned earlier his feelings towards women and Mormon history. He did three things that made a real difference. Number one was that for the first time he brought women into the history division who were trained historians. Number two was that he encouraged both them and other historians outside of the history division to write the history of Mormon women. It just hadn't been done before. Number three, and one that he hadn't gone looking for, was that he became, or he shepherded through the case study that changed the entire, entire church policy regarding the employment of women. What happened was that one of the first employees that he brought in was Maureen Ersenbach, who was trained as a historian. Shortly after she was employed, she got married. In earlier years, that would have cost her her job. When Clara Middlemas was McKay's secretary, if you were a female and you worked in the church office building and you got married, you got fired. That was fixed by one of the Civil Rights Acts. By the time Maureen got there, she could still maintain her job, but if she got pregnant, she got fired. <laughs> so she went into Leonard one day and said, I'm about four months pregnant, and I just thought you'd better know because I'll have to make plans to leave. And he said, don't say anything yet. He went to Christine Durham. Morris talked about her. She was then in private law practice prior to joining the Utah Supreme Court and got a legal opinion from her. What she said was the 1974 Civil Rights Act. Morris, do I have that date right? I, I, I think that was the next level of Civil Rights Acts. 
has created a legal environment where that could pose a real problem for the church. That if Beecher were to side to bring a lawsuit against the church, she would probably prevail. So Leonard tucked that legal opinion away, went to the personnel department, and said, Sister Beecher is a fine member of the church, and I don't think that she would ever do anything that would embarrass the church, but if she were to do it, I have been advised that the church might be legally liable if she filed a lawsuit. The church went to in-house counsel, it went to Curtin McConkie, and it went to Wilkinson Barker in Washington, D.C., and got three legal opinions that all said the same thing, which was, don't mess with this. So there is a letter in Maureen's possession that welcomes her and her child uh, and wishes her a good career in the church historical department. But those three things, the bringing in of women to write history, the encouragement of the writing of women's history, and then changing the employment policy for the entire church office building because of Marine's situation, you got to give Leonard a lot of credit for those. Once he and his colleagues got established there, which began in April of 1972, they became immediately productive. And the reason was that they were looking at materials that nobody had been allowed to see for decades, if forever. It didn't take too long for the term Camelot to start to get used to what was going on. Whether you call it Camelot or something else, it certainly was a golden age for the writing of Mormon history just because so much was there. If you go back and look at some of those papers and books that were published from that time period and compare them to the quality of what's being published now, it pales by comparison. The novelty was not so much the quality of the scholarship as the type of material that they had access to that was now coming out. Some of you may remember when the one-volume history of the church, The Story of the Latter-day Saints, was published in 1976. It created an enormous amount of enthusiasm through the church. It was printed at the first printing of 35,000 copies that quickly sold out. But it also became the lightning rod that turned out eventually to be the demise of the history division. And what happened was that shortly after that book came into press, two senior apostles in particular, Ezra Taft Benson and Mark Peterson, and to a much lesser extent a junior apostle by the name of Boyd Packer, decided that they wanted to take offense at the book. Now, it turned out that all three of them eventually conceded that they'd never read the book, that they were relying on photocopies of certain pages that had been underlined by some of their lieutenants uh, and taken out of context to make those look objectionable. But then and now, if you read the story of the Latter-day Saints from cover to cover, the thing that will probably register with you is how tame a book it is. Uh, it was written in such a mild tone of voice it would be hard to think that there would be anybody who could take offense, and nonetheless, these three men in particular took great offense in it, and that became the first shot over the bow for them that eventually resulted in dismantling the history division and sending all of the historians either to other jobs or sending them to Provo to a consolation prize that they created called the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute for Church History. The essential battleground 
was not what was in that book or any other book or article that they wrote. To understand what the real issue was, consider that for over a hundred years, the writing of Mormon history had been controlled by the ecclesiastical arm of the church. That was the issue. The CRESAP reorganization in 1972 took this and created this, so that now the history division, which was given specifically the responsibility for writing narrative history, was under the control of the professionals. Leonard even took it as a great victory that early on he was able to convince the First Presidency that what they wrote shouldn't go through the correlation process. It turned out that was a fatal mistake on their part because that just pushed them farther out of orbit and at a time when President Kimball was ailing and no longer able to defend them, Benson, Peterson, and Packer were able to dismantle the entire operation. So Camelot was not a long-lived affair. The story of the Latter-day Saints came out in 1976, four years after Leonard became church historian. The storm clouds started to appear almost immediately. By 1978, it was already apparent that were plans were underway to dismantle the division as soon as the senior apostles could figure out how to do it. Another tree that fell was the idea of writing a sesquicentennial history of the church, 16 volumes, each with a single author expert in that field. The contracts were all signed with Deseret Book Company, but it wasn't too many years after that that very quietly all of those authors were contacted and the contracts were bought out. If they had finished their manuscripts, they were allowed to publish them independently. Several of those have never been published, and the sesquicentennial history as a coherent collection of books never happened. The point being that these three apostles in particular felt that the writing of the history should remain under direct ecclesiastical control, and what had happened was that the historians were now controlling that. This was in a pre-internet age where if you controlled the data, you could still control the message. That's gone now, and it will never come back. A couple of things that he said about the bureaucracy. One was, quote, nothing could put more strains on imaginative programming than the feeling that if it did not come from a general authority, it should not have been thought of. It is suspect immediately if it comes from any other source. And then he described how difficult it was to get a decision within that bureaucracy. We want to determine a matter of policy. We take it to Elder Joseph Anderson. Anderson was then 87 and had replaced Alvin Dyer as the executive director of the historical department. Elder Anderson does not make a decision. Almost never does he make a decision. He recommends we take that question to the advisors to the twelve. The advisors almost never make a decision. They recommend we take it to the First Presidency. We do not receive answers on many of the questions we take to the First Presidency. The First Presidency wants to discuss it with the Twelve. It never gets on the agenda of the Twelve. Or if it does make the agenda, they don't get to it. Or if they get to it, someone asks a question about it, which our advisors can't answer, so it's referred to them to get the answer. They subsequently ask us the question, we provide an answer, they go back with it to the Twelve. By that time, the Twelve have another question. We have had several of our proposals follow precisely this route with no decision in a year or even two. It drove Leonard absolutely nuts 
that he had to try to work within this bureaucracy. Had he the tools from his experience at Utah State University in dealing with the bureaucracy, I think he would have fared better. It might have prolonged the existence of the history division, but I don't think it could have circumvented what was really inevitable, and that was that the apostles would prevail, the division would be dissolved, and it would be taken up at a later time. Now, let me talk about five lessons that I think we can learn from Leonard and from his colleagues, particularly during his time as church historian. Number one, amateurs are welcome. I think this in part came about because he was an amateur. He had a degree in economics and not history. He started a tone that exists to this day within the Mormon History Association in particular, where your entry card is an interest in Mormon history. If you look at virtually any other professional organization, those organizations primarily police their boundaries so that they're exclusive rather than inclusive. Leonard created an atmosphere of inclusivity that prevails to this day. And there are people, including Armand here, when I interviewed him, who said, you know, I showed up at the initial meeting of the Mormon History Association feeling a little inadequate because I'm a sociologist. It didn't matter to Leonard. He was welcomed and uh, Armand had a very productive career, I think in some measure because of the signal that Leonard sent to you at that time. Lesson number two, history can inform testimony, but history is not testimony. And this, I think, was where Leonard inadvertently crossed swords with the senior apostles, that he felt that the story should be told for what it was and that truth would prevail and we would be fine the ecclesiastical arm of the church felt differently, and that was the only thing that should be written is something that in our mind directly promotes faith. That becomes a very, very difficult task to pull off, and ultimately, especially in an internet age, it won't work. Number three, Leonard failed to grasp that it's the 12 show, and it still is. In the aftermath of David O. McKay's death, the church was transformed largely because of Harold B. Lee from a monarchy to a constitutional monarchy, that McKay and his predecessors had been both head of state and head of government. With the reorganization that Lee shepherded through, the president of the church remained the head of state, but the president of the Quorum of the Twelve became the prime minister, the head of government. And that remains intact to this day. Most of the organizations within the church, almost all of them now, funnel up through advisors to the Twelve and then into the Twelve rather than the First Presidency. Mm -hmm. Leonard didn't get it. He didn't understand that the First Presidency is a temporary thing, and once a personality departs from the First Presidency through death, life can change. And he never put in the effort to try to get the consensus within the Twelve that would have allowed him to continue to do what he wanted to do. Number four, nature abhors a vacuum. The first time that we had a church president who was incapacitated for a significant period of time was the latter years of David O. McKay's presidency. During that time, there was a flare-up at the level of the first presidency and the Twelve over the issue of blacks and priesthood. McKay was not functioning adequately to have any effect upon it. Hugh Brown tried to change the policy on the ordination of blacks through administrative action. Harold B. Lee blocked that. 
and forced Brown and Tanner to sign a First Presidency letter written by Lee reaffirming the policy of exclusion. That was incident number one. Incident number two was in the late Kimball years, 1980 to 1982, when all of the disassembly happened. It, where Kimball was no longer functioning mentally and so he was no longer able to protect the history division in what he had protected them to do prior to that time. Leonard also encountered the power vacuum a third time a decade later. That was in 1993. He was not affected directly this time, but now Ezra Taft Benson was not functioning, men functioning mentally, and Boyd Packer, as a senior apostle now, took it upon himself to call several stake presidents and demand church punitive action towards what became known as the September 6th. So Leonard found firsthand in the 1980s what uh, the effect of nature of whoring a vacuum was. He found out indirectly in 1993, and very sadly, he died in 1999, so just six years after the September 6th, when he published his autobiography in 1998, a year before his death he seriously worried that he would be next on the list. He thought that he would be excommunicated for writing that autobiography. If you read the autobiography, you would be astounded that anybody could take any offense at anything in there, similar to the story of the Latter-day Saints, and yet he had this very real fear. And lesson number five is good scholarship would prevail, but sometimes you have to be patient. And what Leonard and his co-workers had tried to pull off in the days of Camelot was put to rest uh, an analogy that I think of was in 1857 when the foundation for the Salt Lake Temple was covered up with the advance of Johnston's army. And it was left covered up for another decade after that, then uncovered and eventually uh, 30 years later or whatever the uh, temple was completed. That's what happened with Leonard and his franchise. After the history division was dismantled and shipped down to Provo, there was not a trace left of the history division. They took the sign off the door, and it's as if it hadn't even existed. But then, several decades later, largely because of the Joseph Smith Papers Project, the remnants of the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute were plucked back from Provo, brought to the historical department again to staff the Joseph Smith Papers Project, and now you can see all of the incredible books that have been written resting on the foundation of what Leonard and his people had uh, constructed decades earlier. Just too bad that he didn't live long enough to see that fruition. So that's enough for me. We've got a half hour at least uh, for questions. Yes. Go ahead, Armin. Just on that last point, I'd like to, to see uh, some really strenuous credit go here to Marlon Jensen as the re, what would you say, reincarnation almost of Leonard. Uh, I think of him as, as a uh, especially important uh, leader in bringing the, uh, the writing of history back in the spirit of Leonard back to the church headquarters. Yes, not only uh, do I view Marlon and Leonard as of the same mind as to way the world should right. function, but if you look at Marlon's tool chest, it has what Leonard didn't have. Marlon knew how to operate within the bureaucracy. Absolutely. His diplomatic skills 
are amazing, and I think that that in large part allowed him and his department to do things that Leonard could not have imagined. If you look at the massacre at Mountain Meadows and all of the documents that those three authors were allowed to see, that's something Leonard couldn't even have dreamed of because even though he was the church historian, he didn't have total access to things and never was able to see the documents that Rick and the co-authors saw. So you're absolutely right. And I think that Steve Snow has been, even though a different personality than Marlon, has been almost a seamless successor to what Marlon was able to accomplish and is at least equally skilled in his <coughs> diplomacy. And that's all part of pulling this thing off. Yeah. Yes? Uh, Marlon graduated first in his class from law school. He's a smart guy <laughs> and a really nice person. Any reason to believe that uh, Howard W. Hunter had read uh, Great Basin Kingdom? I don't know if he did. Um, the, the fact that most of those men, if they were ever pushed on the issue, would acknowledge, well, we haven't read such and such a book, including the story of the Latter-day Saints, I don't know the answer to that. They at least knew by reputation uh, the things that Leonard had written. Now, if, if Benson and Peterson in particular had read Great Basin Kingdom, I don't think that they would have voted to make Leonard Church historian. He doesn't mince his words in Great Basin Kingdom. He's not coming out as an adversary to the church. He's just telling the story as the data allowed him to tell it. But that story is not a warm and fuzzy story at all. In many respects, what Leonard is doing is documenting these enormous failures economically of when the ecclesiastical folks were trying to run the show with the assumption being that because they were God's agents that everything that they said would translate into miracles. And again and again and again, if you look at the sugar industry, the iron industry, the lead industry near Las Vegas, they were colossal failures. They cost a lot of money and they cost a lot of testimonies along the way as well. So. Whether Hunter ever read it, I don't know, but I'm quite sure that the other men hadn't read it. But he was more or less the chief champion to begin with among the 15. He was one of them. Uh, Eldon Tanner, I think, was even a more vocal proponent, and he was the one who extended the calling to Leonard. One who really surprised me, and I would never have thought of it, but once I got into Leonard's diaries, it became very clear, was Harold B. Lee. He was actively supportive of everything that Leonard stood for, everything that he was trying to do. I would not have thought that of Lee. And it was Lee's premature death that I think got the thing off kilter and it never really got back on. Kimball was passively supportive. Leonard had written uh, the Edwin Woolley biography, which you've got, I think, here, don't you? Yeah. And that was one of Kimball's direct ancestors. So he was very appreciative of what Leonard was doing. But his mind was elsewhere. He was looking at the missionary program as the primary thing that he was interested in. So he wasn't the kind of active proponent that Harold B. Lee was. We'll go to this side, in the back. Did you speak to uh, Arrington mentoring other historians? I think that that will be a greater legacy than what he wrote. His mentorship, not just of other historians, but of these amateurs that were welcomed. Great Basin Kingdom was his high water mark, and it was the first thing that he published. Most of what he published after that, particularly the books, 
was everywhere from okay to mediocre to awful. It depended on who the ghostwriter was. Because many of those books were done on commission and published in small runs, and they just weren't very good history. But his mentorship was amazing. His daughter said that at the two funerals, he had one Salt Lake and then one in Logan, said dozens of people came up to me and said, your father did this and this and this to help me, either in my career or in my avocation. And I think that circled back to his welcoming of the amateur. One of the people who was a huge beneficiary of that was um, Linda Newell. She said, I was a housewife. I had never written anything since a term paper in college. And one of my friends said, here, let me take you into the historical department and introduce you to the people there. It was not long after Leonard became the church historian. And she said, I was scared to death that these guys were going to laugh at me because what I said was, well, I think I'd like to write a biography of Emma Smith. And not only did they not laugh at her, Leonard was very supportive, and she later, after the book was published, uh, Mormon Enigma, she went back to Leonard and said, why didn't you laugh at me then? And he said, well, we just thought, this is interesting, we'll see what these ladies can do. And they did a pretty good thing. So yes, you're right on. His mentorship is probably his most durable legacy. Yes? Much of what uh, is coming out of the church historian's office now uh, is, is the publication of primary materials. Yes. And, and there have maybe been a few writings where it's actually maybe what we normally think of as history. Right. But is this, do you think this is kind of the compromise? Is this something yes. that's going to I know continue? it is. I talked to Marlon about that. He said, so yes, our focus is going to be documentary history and not narrative history. And I, I think in part that is reflective of his diplomatic skills, realizing that if we get too deep into narrative history, we're likely to hit some speed bumps. If we are restricting ourselves to the documentary history, that's much more palatable for the patrons. Yeah? But hasn't that been a, a very useful compromise in them doing documentary and, and uh, uh, Rick Turley and, and, and the Troika going to... Oxford and you going to University of Utah and all these other people who have ended up over at Oxford as well. And it's it's given, you know, a great deal of credibility to have these insiders coming from outside yes. publishers. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant move. And I don't see that that's likely to change. And I think it's a good balance because how many decades of documentary history are yet in front of us if they want to keep going in that direction. Look at how massive the Joseph Smith Papers Project had been. That pales by comparison with what a Brigham Young Papers Project would be. That could go on for decades. Yes? The Mark Hoffman forgeries? Yes. Those were happening near the end of his tenure as church historian, right? It was act... Uh, he ended in 82. Yeah, it was right towards the end. The bombings were 1985. He what was historian from 1972 to 1980, or 1982, depending on how you're counting. Because in 1980, he wrote a letter to the First Presidency and said, I don't think I was ever released, but I was sustained. And so they wrote a letter back and said, well, we're making your release retroactive to 1980. <laughs> well, or whatever what that meant. But yeah, the, the first Hoffman documents were, I think, in about 79, because I can remember being at the Canandaigua MHA conference in 1980, 
And one of those documents was all the rage. I think it was the Anthon manuscript. And it, there was a special presentation at the MHA meeting. Leonard and really his co-workers get very poor marks on the Hoffman documents. They bought into it from yeah. top to bottom. And even after Hoffman had confessed the murders, Leonard wrote in his diary, I still think that some of those documents are authentic. And I think what was happening is that he wanted them to be authentic because they filled some holes that he wanted to have filled. The problem was they're all forgeries. Uh, but shame on the historians for never picking up on that. And, and they really didn't. One of the great ironies of that period is that the person who may have had most to gain by the documents being authentic, Gerald Tanner, was the first one to blow the whistle. I interviewed his wife, Sandra, and she said, I talked to him and said, Gerald, come on now. You can't say these things are forgeries. They've got to be authentic. And he said, they don't smell right. And he came out in the Salt Lake City Messenger and was the first one in print to say, this doesn't feel right. And he stuck with that, and he was correct. So not even Dean Jesse, who was the church's handwriting expert, was able to smoke out that these things were forgeries. Hoffman was very clever. Give him some credit for that. Uh, one of our friends, Tony Hutchinson, had a friend who had been a missionary companion to Hoffman in England and said that he used to go on his preparation day to antique stores and ask them if they had any antique paper. Because that's one of the things that he figured out early on. It would be easy to date paper, so you couldn't try to artificially age modern paper. Another thing that he did was that he went into the Marriott Library at the University of Utah and he would requisition volumes of Niles National Register. This was uh, a periodical that started in 1818 and went through, I think, about 1849. It was kind of the Time magazine of its era, but at the beginning, at the end of each bound volume would be several blank pages. He took a little kite string, and he would wet it in his mouth and then just stick it along the binding, let it sit for a while, and then, without making any noise, he could tear out those end sheets. They figured this out in retroactively. I talked to Greg Thompson about it. He said, we had all the requisition slips, and we went back and checked, and he says, every one of those volumes that he had requisitioned, he had torn out the blank pieces of paper so that the paper he used for his forgeries was authentic to the time period. He was clever. Yes? I'm uh, of the millennial generation, and uh, my, uh, my introduction to uncorrelated church history uh, is the likes of you know, John DeLynn podcasts and uh, bloggernackle websites, uh, and, and it was not a soft landing. And I was just wondering um, if you had any advice to people of my generation learning this uh, kind of uh, more hidden and, uh, and sticky church history for the first time, and also wondering what your predictions are for the next 10 to 20 years uh, as this becomes more and more available online. My statement, understand, is not directed at you individually. You've given me the license to talk to your generation. It's <laughs> So my advice is quit being so damn lazy. <laughs> because what I find is that the millennials do very little reading of the actual documents. Right. 
What they do is read the bits and pieces that are floating around on the internet or listen to the podcast. That isn't going to cut it. You've got to be willing to put in the time to read the original documents or the original narrative histories, and that's going to get you to solid ground. You'll do fine. If you're just looking at bits and pieces on the internet, if you think that if you can Google it, it exists, and if you can't Google it, it doesn't exist, then you're in deep doo-doo. It's a very lazy generation, and they're paying a price because of that. Shame on them. Yes? Real quick, I served my mission from 1977 to 79, and the story of the Latter-day Saints was, I was in Australia, actually the mission home of Bruce R. McConkie book, and we were selling uh, out of the mission home that book to new members because it was not, quote, the official history of the church, but it was kind of as an official, meaning it was a Deseret book, it was, it was Leonard Arrington, the church historian, who wrote it, and it was mild. Uh, what specifically do you, did Elder McConkie and Elder Peterson uh, it wasn't McConkie. It was Benson and Peterson. Oh, I thought you said McConkie. So no, McConkie and Hunter were over the. They were, they were this. Oh, I see. Okay. What, were, what was their or what did they see as being uh, too aggressive or too? Uh... It, you're, you're asking the wrong question. Their beef was we don't want the professionals writing the history. Period. At about the same time. 1973, one of my best friends, Lester Bush, was working in Australia for some government organization. And it was at that time that he had written his manuscript on blacks and priesthood that became, I think by all odds, the most important article the dialogue ever published. But he, he unexpectedly had to make a trip from Alice Springs, Australia, to an installation there, back to Washington because they had one of their sensitive personnel who had to be escorted. He was having some, I think, mental problems. So Lester had to accompany him on the flight back. In returning, he stopped in Salt Lake. And uh, because Packer had made, it been, had made it known to him that he'd like to talk to him, if possible, about his manuscript. And Packer had gotten the manuscript because of whatever. So Lester spent two lengthy sessions with him on successive days. And Lester told me, he said, it quickly became apparent to me that I knew the subject a lot better than he did and that he ultimately acknowledged that. What he acknowledged was, I'd just assume you didn't publish this. That was the issue. Because Lester said to him, look, if there are inaccuracies there, tell me and I'll fix them. Well, and that was the same thing with the story of the Latter-day Saints. It's not that it was inaccurate. It's that it was written as an attempt to be objective history and it wasn't with, with God behind every bush on every page, which is the way the history had been written before. Look at what the story of the Latter-day Saints replaced. It was Essentials in Church History, which initially was written in either 1922 or 1923. Put those two side by side and start to read them. You'll see why it was such a stark reality check for those apostles. It wasn't the data. It was the genre. They had lost control of the faith-promoting history. It was an easier to read book. I, I, read, I had read comprehensive history before my mission. And when I read that book, it, when you say mild, it was an easy-to-read book and very, you know... The Story of Latter-day Saints? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's a very good read. And it still is a good one-volume survey history of the church. 
James B. Allen and uh, Jim Allen and Glenn Leonard were the authors of it, and they took great pains. And these are not confrontational guys, either one of them. They were writing it for the seminary and institute students. And basically, you're saying it came down to ego, ego between. It came down to two clashing worldviews, and and I can empathize with the apostles because I can see, having read through all the records, where they are coming from. They were trying to preserve the old world order. Um, let, let me see if I can pick this out quickly here because it talks to that very issue. It was a, it was a little anecdote when the professionals came in. Here it is. 92-year-old Will Lund was there when I began. This was one of the people who talked to me about Leonard. Said, I remember vividly working on a microfilm. We were comparing the manuscript history of the church with the published history of the church, word for word. Brother Lund came shuffling by, and he peered over our shoulders and said, What are you two doing? Marvin Hill said, from BYU, said, We're working on the history of the church. He just looked at it for a moment, and then he leaned over and yanked off the reel from the microfilm machine and said, You cannot do this. Marvin was very patient. He didn't get upset. Then we went into the office of Brother Howard Hunter, and he very kindly said to Brother Lund, this is a new day, Brother Lund, a new day. He let us go back and use them, and he gave Brother Lund a big hug and said, don't worry too much about this. It will be okay. That's what the problem was. But Hunter couldn't say that to two apostles who were senior to him. And there was the problem. It was the clash of two worldviews, pure and simple. Greg, you, there was an article in the Salt Lake Tribune. For those who may not have seen that, uh, you listed several things that Leonard one time said he'd like to see change in the current order. I thought those were really interesting. Can you? I, I can't remember right now what they were, but they were all good. That's why I put them in the book. <laughs> all right, I guess we'll have to read them. So, well, one of them was he wanted to, he wanted to Brother, to stop giving positions to the highest tithe payers in the church. Yeah. And that was curious to say the least. What, what exa- exactly does that mean? Yeah, well, I think what, that he observed what maybe a few other people in the church has observed, that if you look at the socioeconomic stratum of bishop, stake, presidents versus laity, you may see some contrasts, and that's what he was getting at. And he was good. He opposed a strict seniority. Yeah. I think we got it. Yes, one more. Uh, do you think if President McKay had lived longer that the issue of the blacks would have been resolved sooner? No. 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 President McKay, I think, picked up what he did when he was on his worldwide tour in 1921. That he met a couple in Hawaii. The woman was... Hawaiian, the man was African American, fine couple, members of the church, and he wrote to President Grant and said, would it be possible to make an exception to the rule? And Grant wrote back and said, David, I would like to do that as much as you would, but if that were ever to change, it would take a revelation to do it. I think that's probably where it was cemented in his mind that this would require a revelation to overturn. Now, McKay did a balancing act. He never called the policy a revelation. The people around him did. 
and they didn't realize that he was very precise in the words that he used generally. He was an English major. He was a professor of English. So in his mind, it was a policy, and in the early 50s, he told Sterling McMurrin, it will change, because it is just a policy. But he had the caveat, it will take the force of revelation to change it. I think what he meant, though he never specified it, was he knew how firmly entrenched it was, so even though it was changeable, it would require playing the R card, like President Nelson did in January, to get it overturned. The people around him didn't realize that. Now, McMurrin never wrote down or told other people about that 1954 meeting with McKay until 1968. Then he wrote a letter to his colleague at the University of Utah, Llewellyn McKay, one of the four surviving McKay sons, saying, you should have this for your family records. And he then gave the account of what McKay had said 14 years earlier. A copy of that got to Alvin Dyer, and to Hugh Brown. Brown read it and thought, well, if it's a policy, we can just change it. Dyer, who was very racist in his own philosophy, took it to Lee, who had said to his daughter on at least one occasion, this policy will never change as long as I'm alive, and he was right. So you had Brown trying to change it administratively, and Lee absolutely determined that he wouldn't change it administratively, and so you had the clash of titans, that resulted in Brown being released from the First Presidency as soon as McKay died. That was the first time that a sitting councillor had been released since the death of Brigham Young almost a century earlier, and it was devastating to Brown. But no, um, McKay, time after time, tried to get the answer to that. I documented five instances, separate instances, from 1954 until 1968, when he told people, I have taken this to the Lord. And the last time that uh, he did it, uh, that I'm aware of at least, it was told to me by a church architect who said he came into the architectural department one day and was just muttering, what's wrong? He says, well, this thing about blacks and priests that I've taken it to the Lord many times and I took it again late last night. And the answer without discussion was, no, not yet. This will not happen during your lifetime. End of discussion. So no. It, it would not have changed. It required a revelation to do it, and Kimball took that route, even though Kimball and McKay, the best of my knowledge and Ed Kimball's knowledge, never discussed the matter between themselves. There was zero communication on it. Thank Morris? you, Greg. For listening to the Dialogue podcasts in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.